You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Good morning, guests. Though when I say good, I don't mean it probably won't turn to rain or might be snow or fog or thunder. You didn't sleep last night, I dare say. You and I, we're going on a journey today, and the bright side of it is that if we break our necks getting down the cliff, we won't be drowned in the river. (laughs) These are some of my favorite words from some of my all-time favorite character, Puddle Glum the Marsh Wiggle from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles. So C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the specific book, is The Silver Chair. And Puddleglum, as his name suggested, is a naturally pessimistic character, but when it came down to it, he proved to be loyal and resilient and observant and steadfast and even hopeful. So Puddleglum, in the course of the story, he encounters the possibility of the savior in his world, who is called Aslan. And he risks to hope that someone bigger than his own depression and his own anxiety is there. And he heads towards him. So if we've not met, like Roger said, my name is Angela Otero, and I am a big fan of Aslan and Puddlegum. And this month, we've been in a sermon series called Anxious for Nothing. And so I'm, I'm going to weave a bit of my own story into the sermon today, um, because the scripture we're reading has not always come easy to me, to read it, to live it, and so maybe you can relate to my story a bit. But first, let's pray together. Jesus, you are good and true, and you are the best thing that has ever happened to me, <laughs> and I love you. And I ask you today to use my mouth to speak your words to our friends listening. May this not be about me at all, but about you and what you have to offer to each person listening today. Amen. Amen. So, like Puddle Glum, I confess I have always been what you might call a glass is half empty sort of person. I've never been admit, afraid of admitting hard truths. I've never been um, afraid of saying, oh my gosh, this is broken, we've gotta fix it. <laughs> Things are falling apart. Um, I would call it being a realist. You might call it being a pessimist. I think my dad was really worried about me growing up for a while. <laughs> for example, to celebrate my 13th birthday, I convinced my best friend Jenny to watch Schindler's List with me. And then I proceeded to grouch all night long about the evils of humanity. (laughs) I don't know why she put up with me. I probably thought, well, if I dwell on the worst, then nothing or no one can hurt me because I'm already there. The trouble is this backfires. And when I expect the worst, I never seem to notice the good. 
I'm not an expert, but I can tell you like a skosh about neuroscience. And what I've learned is that the person who dwells on the negative starts to carve these like neuro pathways, neuro connections in the brain. And the more that you do it, the more that they fire more and more easily. And so the easier it is to go to a depressed or anxious state because we're just, our channels are getting really used to it and really good at it. It's harder and harder to feel safe and happy and calm. And the more we do it, the worse it gets. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I've had um, four seasons of really major um, deep, dark depression. And during the fourth and worst, I began seeing a, a therapist, a psychotherapist. And honestly, it was the best thing that I could have done because honestly, guys, my church wasn't able to pray it away from me. <laughs> and I call those seasons my valleys of the shadow of death. And I 100% recommend medical and psychological treatment for depression and anxiety disorders. So don't hear me today say anything otherwise. There should be no shame in getting help. Amen. Thank you. Amen. There should be no shame in getting help. Just like a cancer patient gets help for an illness. Mental illness is an illness. So don't in any way let, hear me like diminishing that. Maybe you don't suffer from depression or an anxiety disorder, but I know you fairly well, and I know there are people here who are um, suffering from some pretty deep grief right now. You've lost people you love, and the grief is enormous. Some of you, your financial state has your stomach in knots like all the time. Some of you feel like your past trauma just keeps coming up in your current relationships, and you wonder if you'll ever get free. For some people, your present relationships or your present circumstances just have you stuck in this mental loop of anxiety over and over and over. If I just say this or if I just do this. Maybe you are experiencing a valley of the shadow of death. <clears throat> and your pain and your suffering, they are real. And your anxiety and your depression are real. That's why we spent a whole month talking about it. And I'm sorry. Some of you walked in today on top of the world, and so far I have been a real bummer. <laughs> I'm sorry to you too. <laughs> The good news is your anxiety or depression or grief as it may be is not your fault. God's not mad at you. They're highly treatable or processable as grief may be. And Jesus does offer a way out. But, and here's the but, we must choose to participate in our own healing. 
So let's read these verses that I alluded to a minute ago from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. He gives us part of the antidote for anxiety and depression. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul urges the Philippians and us, I would say, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. These verses frustrated me for about 20 years um, because in my experience, they are much easier read than done. And I would read them and I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I could be that way. (laughs) But what I can say this, this conviction and this exhortation from Paul did not come cheap. He's not just sitting around having fun, writing this, like, let's rejoice. He's in a He's in a prison as he's writing this, a Roman prison. And he's not saying, deny your circumstances or avoid your true feelings or pretend the hard stuff isn't there. Whether it's depression or anxiety or grief, Paul urges the Philippians to make a conscious effort to focus their energy on what is good. Let me read those last, that last verse eight again. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But how do we put this into practice? I have for us um, three possible examples today. There are endless ways to do it. There's as many ways to put this into practice as there are humans that have ever lived. Um, But I have three ideas for us and three that have uh, really nourished and nurtured me in my path to healing and recovery. So, I've got for you today three spiritual practices to heal the anxious anxious mind. So in my family, I put a G in ancient and I put a G in anxious. And so you're just going to have to chuckle every time I do it because my family is, I know. Um, (laughs) To heal the anxious mind. So first, we choose to turn from what is not good. Let's face it, in this broken world, Our minds are inundated with negativity all the time. And we have to stop 
we have to stop the cycle of negative input that keeps bombarding us. Imagine Paul had said, whatever is false, whatever is despicable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure and ugly, shoddy and unrespectable, dwell on these things. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, right? And yet, we do. That's exactly what our news and our media, they're designed to do, inform us more efficiently than ever of what is despicable and unjust and impure and ugly and sad. You might not be like this at all, but for a long time, I believed that I should be informed of everything and I needed to be informed of everything and then I needed to take action on everything Otherwise, I'm complicit in all the evils of all the world. I actually had someone tell me that once. Like, if you don't do and fix all these things, you're complicit. And I really got overwhelmed. Like, the anxiety and the, um, like, the feelings of helplessness, but then the feelings of I must do something just really weighed me down. And I was in my garden, because that's where I process things with Jesus. And, um, and I was like, Lord, I just, this is too much. Like, I can't do it all. And he said, who made you the watchdog of morality and humanity? And I realized that is not the task that God assigned us in the garden he actually said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then I started reflecting, like when in the, you know, the span of human history were members of like local tribes, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when were they expected to be morally responsible for um, people on the other side of the earth? And we want never, and we wonder why we're so anxious. Anxious, there I did it. As individuals, we can't hold all the knowledge and all the weight of all the world. We just weren't ever designed to. It was more than our souls were intended to carry. And yes, I understand we're part of a global world and a global economy now, and there are things that we can and probably should do don't ignore your convictions. Don't ignore the callings of your soul. But when anxiety starts to rise, Jesus takes responsibility for knowing and saving the world. He's the only one, fully God, fully human, capable of taking on the moral culpability of all of humanity. So let me ask you, when and where are you being exposed to undue angst and negativity beyond what you might call your local tribe, beyond your neighborhood, whatever, however you would define that? Because Jesus said, love God 
and love your neighbor. Those are the greatest commandments, and those feel a lot more doable. So I've had to develop some healthy boundaries personally for my relationship with human suffering and darkness. I don't watch Schindler's List anymore on my birthday. <laughs> it's a great film, and you should watch it when the time is right. That and Amistad and um, Hotel Rwanda, like these are meaningful and important works. But don't do it on your birthday. <laughs> do something life-affirming on your birthday. For me, one year, I gave up Facebook for Lent, and actually, I felt so much relief that I like, forgot to ever kind of go back. And I still have my Facebook account, and I hop on there every once in a while, but I felt so much relief, I just said, I just don't need that anymore. When I gave it up, like I said, I felt so much better. That might be the invitation for you, it might not be. But maybe news is, or music, or TV, or a toxic relationship. Any way that negative input is coming into you and building up your anxiety level. Anything that exposes you to what is false and despicable and unjust and deplorable and ugly and sad. Let God worry about it. Notice when anxiety is rising up in you and edit the optional things out. So, back to the three proactive practices to heal the anxious mind. First, choose to turn from what is not good. It's a form of abstinence. Second, name what is true. Name what is true. Whatever is true, noble, Right. Even when the untrue is uncomfortable, I mean, even when the true is uncomfortable. And here's a spiritual practice that might help you honor what's true without being avoidant, but also without spiraling downward. I've kind of coined this my anxiety examine. <laughs> examine is a form of prayer where you're reflective. So I've, I've coined this to be my anxiety examine. It can work for processing grief or depression as well. So first, invite the Holy Spirit. Always invite the Holy Spirit to accompany you in an examine. And second, identify where anxiety begins in your body. Your body will tell you. So if you're, if you're mindful and paying attention, like some people say it like feels like a tightening in their gut like an acidy feeling, some people's hearts pound faster, you, maybe you, you clench your shoulders. Um, you'll know, if you pay attention, you'll start to notice where anxiety starts in your body, and then when you, when you notice it, then you can address it. The third is name. Name, what do you think you need in this moment that you don't actually need? Like, I need to feel safe, or I need to feel... Um, like I'm understood, and I'm not feeling understood, so I'm feeling anxiety. And just, just name it, notice it. Another question that might help is, um, what do I think that I need that I actually don't need? Or name, what am I afraid of, or what am I avoiding? Like, oh, 
see this person. Last time I had a conversation with this person, it went badly, so I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding on eye contact with this person. So you, you name it, you notice it. And then I invite you to just prayerfully hold it up to God. It's true. This is how you feel. <laughs> hold it up to God. Naming it and holding it gives him the power over it instead of it having the power over us. You can feel anxious without being an anxious person. So then, last step of this, hold it up to God, give it to him, let him take it instead of it taking me, and then I turn my mind. I turn what I'm doing or thinking about. So usually I'll ask, what's something that gives me life? What can I do right now? And that kind of leads me to our third practice. The third one is take inventory of the good. Habitually. So Paul says whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So I got curious about the word think about such things. Think about right there. And I did a little digging in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did learn that the word there he uses is logizomai. Can you say it with me? Logizomai? Yeah. And um, it, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be meditate, and I love meditate, and let's talk about meditate, but it doesn't, actually. This word literally, this word means to take inventory of, to take inventory of or to estimate something, the value of something, either literally or figuratively. It means to reckon, um, to suppose, or to think on. So I locked in on that word, like take inventory, or to estimate, to make a list of, and then think on it. Do you know where I'm going with this? So, the practice of gratitude. There's been lots of study on gratitude and what it does for the mind. And just like thinking negatively starts to kind of wire our brain to think negatively, thinking positively or practicing gratitude changes the mind as well. Our bodies are brilliantly designed to when we perceive something that's good is happening, we receive like the nature's happy chemical in our brain, dopamine. We get these little hits of dopamine in our brains, and that's what allows us to experience like happiness, pleasure, um, satisfaction, even calm. But did you also know that when you recall a pleasurable memory or event or activity, you also get that same dopamine again? So you kind of get a double whammy, or a triple whammy, or a quadruple whammy every time you recall something that is good. Every time you take a moment to just be in gratitude. But we have to do it again and again and again, daily, 
weekly something, but with regularity and with habit, that's what begins to rewire our brain. It actually, I like to, it's probably a really non-scientific metaphor, but I like to use the idea of like, it's pickling my brain in goodness every time. And for my brain, my naturally puddle-glum brain, I need a lot of goodness. But I will tell you, we started practicing these things in, our, in my personal life, but in our family, and it has been part of my path to healing. Like, isn't that cool? Like, he designed our brains to, if we just pray with gratitude, we're just, it's healing us as we're praying. Even if we're not saying, please heal me, please heal me, it's actually doing it. I just, I love that. I get such a kick out of that. So one of the things that we ask in our family, almost nightly at the dinner table, is what gave you life today? And we just, we take a moment to just, each person goes around and they share one thing. What's one thing that gave you life today? And sometimes they're big and beautiful. I won this award and everyone cheered for me. But sometimes they're just little and simple and we have to kind of scrape to find one. My kids know they get bonus points if they say, this meal. But when my kids were little, my daughter would say something like, lollipop, and we'd go, oh, you know. But then the look on her face would be like mine. I mean, the look on your face gave me life today. But we do, we, we go around the circle and we each share one, but it also leads to conversation, to where then we take time and we kind of dwell on these good things. Because it really is, easy at our dinner table to just start complaining about all the things that were hard, you know? And Roger and I are both like Enneagram one and four, and we can go to dark places really fast. And so like our table can spiral real fast. So actually we usually end up like as we're spiraling, someone goes, what gave you life today? And we're all like, okay, spiral back up. Um, but it's been a really useful practice for our family. I don't know, it might be useful to you too. If you don't have a regular meal that you sit down to, maybe a, a gratitude journal beside your bed and just you ask yourself the question every single day and just almost like, even when it's a discipline, write down something that gave you life today and then just sit in that moment for, for a moment and let that dopamine come to you and that gratitude will well up. And then I like to begin, that's how I begin my prayers because that just moves me into a prayerful state easier. So another one that I've turned to practicing when I first started like reading this verse again and again and again and going, God, how do I do this? How do I do this in the midst of depression? How do I live these verses? And one of the practices that I kind of developed with the Lord was just, I had toddlers at home and they were intense. And I have a really supportive husband. And so I would just be like, I'm going outside. And he'd be like, okay. And I'd just go outside and I'd look at my garden and I'd look at what's growing and I'd say, oh, beautiful flower. Thank you for being you, you know? And then, oh, there's a bumblebee. Isn't that lovely? Look how hard she's working. And, you know, and just, and like force my brain to change the subject, but on to something that was good and lovely and beautiful. And it would, it would interrupt the cycle in my mind. 
And sometimes, yeah, those thoughts would persist. So I'd move on to the next, you know, and I'd do a nice little loop of the whole garden until I could feel myself calmer and I could feel the Lord, like, coming to me in those moments of gratitude. Just simple things, you know? Look at that little line of ants going by. I wonder where they're going and what they're carrying today, you know? It sounds really simple, but for someone who has an anxious mind or someone who's caught in depression, we just, we have to do the simple things because the big things feel really hard. (laughs) Another thing that we developed is um, a practice called gossiping the good stuff. And I got this from a um, child psychology book, I think, uh, Happiest Toddler on the Block. And the, the point of the book, or the point of the section is that you talk to someone about someone else, but you're saying the good things, the admirable things, good things you caught them doing. So, you know, when, with toddlers, it's like, I saw Audrey, she picked up all her toys. Is she looking? Okay, isn't she great? You know, and so you're talking to another person about a third party, but you're doing it in such a way that they will overhear. You know who gets the dopamine that time? Three people get to enjoy the gratitude moment, the lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is praiseworthy. Think on these things. I don't know, you might try it. I try it with adults too, honestly. If you ever walk up on me and I'm talking good about you, it's because I knew you were coming and I was like, watch this. (laughs) And I'd like to close today with a form of prayer. We did kind of the anxiety exam, but I would like to end with one called the gratitude exam. And this is one that I got from a really great book called Mystically Wired by Ken Wilson. And I don't know if he developed it or if he just found it. But let me just invite you. We're going to move into worship immediately after this. And let me just invite you to let this move you into worship. So how about you close your eyes? Actually, stand now. How about do that? Stand now for us. And close your eyes. Just so you know, communion is available to my right and to my left, and you're welcome to partake any time during worship. But the gratitude exam is simple. You close your eyes. You say, come Holy Spirit, show me. And then you begin to reflect over the events of the last 24 hours. You can move backwards or forwards on the timeline, whatever works for your brain. And just allow the Holy Spirit to highlight big things and small. What gave me life? What is honorable? What is lovely? What is true? What is praiseworthy? And then as those things come up for you, just hold them before God. Let the memory of that sink in. Savor it, relish it. Let it pickle your brain. Thank God for it. And let it fuel your worship.